Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hey, everybody, Jennifer here, founder and creator of Old Chick Snow Shit, the community and the podcast. We're going to be talking about basically pushing your perceived mental and physical limits to find your own voice. Today's guest is Deirdre Wallenick, who is a retired college professor. She is a linguist who speaks eight languages. She's an accomplished musician. She is a writer. And she is the author of a book called The Sharp End of Life, which is a really, really touching memoir about her journey. And this is what we're going to be talking about from wife, mother, career woman to challenging her limits, both mentally and physically, to start running marathons at age 55 and to become the oldest woman to climb the 3,000 foot wall of rock in Yosemite called El Capitan at the age of 66. So welcome, Deirdre. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So that is a long list of accomplishments. And I want to start like to give some context for kind of how you got to these, you know, to have all of these, you know, great accomplishments in life. I want to start a little bit about your childhood growing up in New York, because the one thing that I kept thinking as I was reading your book, especially through the first half of the book, was that you didn't really have a voice in your life. Tell us a little bit about what that was like for you growing up. What it was like, very silent. <laughs> very, <laughs> right. very quiet. I, I lived in inside my own head. My mother was handicapped, so I was uh, sort of her little helper, you know, I was an, uh, her little doll. She loved to show me off and she made my clothes and pretty dresses and that's what I was, what I was supposed to be. And I was very duty bound, you know, obedient. And that's the way we were raised, you know, a Polish Polish-American, Polish-Catholic family, you know, the children are supposed to be seen and not heard, do what you're told to do, and that is all that's required of you, you know, just be obedient. So I was, and that's how I grew up, long time. (laughs) Right, and then, you know, you, like you said, your family was very traditional, and so you were raised traditionally in the role of a girl, (laughs) which was to learn to serve everybody, right? To do for others, which like you said, you learned early, you know, with a handicapped mother. And then you ended up in a marriage where you really didn't have your voice and your life kind of followed his desires kind of thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Where we, I'm not sure where you'd like me to start, but that's a big story. (laughs) Yeah, no. So it, it is a big story. And I think, you know, the context in which I was reading this was, you know, you kind of came out of this family with no real sense of self because yourself was all about helping other people. You met this man and again, not having a sense of self, it led, he led you kind of on the journey of exploration of the early part of your life. But again, you weren't actively choosing it. You were kind of following along. (laughs) You know, I grew up very educated and I could do a lot of things. I knew a lot. I was already a linguist. I spoke four languages when I met my husband. And, you know, I was a teacher and uh, so I was quite the person, but not a 
human person. I had never learned to be myself. You know, I had never learned anything about human beings, if you will, and how they interact and how I would interact with them because I was always at home and always being the obedient little girl. And there's no, the Eastern European way of raising children is very, very different from the American way. And so I didn't have a clue who I was. I mean, I knew deep down, but I knew that that wasn't allowed to be shown. You know, I wasn't supposed to tell anybody anything about me. And so so I didn't know anything about them either, you know, the other people, you know. So I, I moved to California sort of as a rebellion, if you will. I wasn't happy with my life in New York uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't meeting Mr. Wright out there anywhere. And I was getting older and, and I wanted to try something new. I, I had always wanted to see California. California was the golden land. You know, I had heard all the myths and I had met one or two people from California who were just so exotic to me, you know, growing up European after World War II, you know, in a European environment in New York City. And so I moved to California, met my husband, and and I didn't have the tools, the, the psychological tools, whatever you want to call them, to really evaluate what he was like. But he was gorgeous. He was handsome. He was all the things that all the people I knew in New York were not. He was free. He was an outdoorsman. He was you know, everything I had no contact with. And that didn't turn out too well. <laughs> turned out well in terms of right now. I mean, I, I have two wonderful, amazing kids and and I've seen the world in ways I would not have without him. So he fed my life in some ways and ruined it in some ways. So that's a tough story. Right. So, I mean, he was a man who, you know, was very much unto himself. Totally. Right. 100%. Like, like lived in his own little bubble, let's it's say, probably, while yeah. you were raising the family, you know, yeah. working, you know, obviously you're a very educated and accomplished, you know, and, and so even though as you were finding your voice through all these accomplishments, it wasn't being heard. No, no. And I that never, we lived in Japan for four years, like right after we got married, got, we both taught English as a foreign language. So in order to do that really well anywhere in this country, you need teaching abroad experience, you know, and so mm -hmm. we got jobs in Japan, both of us, we taught at a university. And we lived there for four years. My daughter was born there. It was an exciting adventure, but it was a totally different adventure for him than it was for me. <laughs> he hated most things about it. And I loved the whole experience. And I learned every day was a learning experience for me. And he just wasn't like that. And that's when it started to kind of, when I started to realize what he was like, you know, he was, I mean, I didn't have any tools. Like I said, I had never heard of all these what do you call them, syndromes that they talk about nowadays mm -hmm. he was probably autistic i'd never heard of that but you know I'd, he was just different you know my right. his mother his mother would smile and say oh that's just the way he is <laughs> right and, and so i had no help i had no tools i didn't understand what was going on every day was a struggle because i didn't understand why he was being the way he was and so uh, yeah it was it was an uphill battle for many years decades and in that, did you ever like completely lose your sense of self? I mean, obviously you're very accomplished, <laughs> you know, and educated. Did you ever, or was it always just kind of like this, like it was just buried deep in you, but did you ever lose that part, like your sense of self? I'm, not, I'm sure I understand what you mean by lose your sense of self. I always knew who I was. Oh, okay. That's exactly, yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, for so many of us as women, especially, I think that 
you know, we get so busy doing all the things for all the people, you know, managing our careers and our households and our kids and our families and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, we completely lose who we are. Like, who am I? What do I want? What's important to me? Yeah. No, that that's, uh, was all in there. And uh, I'm, I had always kept a journal through all the miserable, miserable years. <laughs> I kept a journal. And um, that was my shrink, you know. Right. Through the journal, I figured everything out except my husband. I couldn't figure him out because I'd never heard of these these diseases, these syndromes, these, you know, maladies that affect people psychologically, mentally, you know, mm-hmm. emotionally. I didn't know anything about that. And so everything else was, I knew. I mean, I knew who I was. I knew what I loved. I knew I loved writing and music. And, you know, when I started my or I started an orchestra. I organized and created an orchestra in West Sacramento, and I conducted it for four years. And that's quite an endeavor. But yeah. no one ever said anything about it in his family he never said anything about it. He never said anything about anything. He didn't talk much unless it was about travel. That was his only obsession. And so while we were settled down in West Sacramento, he had absolutely nothing to say about anything. So I had this amazing thing. I was an orchestra conductor. I mean, how many people do you know who get to do this? Yeah. And it was one of my lifelong dreams. I mean, I used to watch all the conductors in, in you know, concerts in Central Park and I'd, I'd go to Lincoln Center and I observed, you know, and I played music all my life. I played in orchestras and stuff. And so I knew that I knew how to do these things. Mm. And I did them and one after the other for decades and nobody ever said a word about it. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, that must have felt quite lonely. I mean, and you mentioned that in the book several times about feeling lonely. Um, Because, you know, you hope that the people that you're with are going to celebrate your accomplishments. And that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, it was, but never had a word to say about it. Wow. So how did you end up tackling these physical things? Because, I mean, obviously, the word tenacity kept coming up for me as I was reading your story. Because, I mean, you had the tenacity that helps you learn languages, which is not an overnight thing, right? Like to learn how to conduct an orchestra, to learn how to climb again, which is not an overnight thing. No. <laughs> and then there was this part of tenacity, which was like the part of the wanted you to make your marriage work, that wanted you to be okay yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kept thinking there's this like double-edged sword to tenacity. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My mother used to call me stubborn all the time. You know, you're so <laughs> okay. stubborn. You're so stubborn. You're obstinate. And in order to succeed in life, you really do have to be stubborn. Hmm. In order to succeed at what you want to do, you have to be pretty stubborn, tenacious, uh, obstinate, whatever right. you want to call it. Not in an obnoxious <laughs> way, you know, right. to be stubborn about things and always want your own way. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, you pick a goal, you focus on it, and you just keep chipping away at it until it happens, hmm. you know? Anybody can do these things. It's like my son. My son, you didn't mention him yet, but yeah. I will talk about him. His name is Alex Honnold. And, you know, the the star, I guess stars were the subject of that Oscar-winning documentary, Free Solo. Yeah. You wanted to do what he does, you know, to climb those rock walls without assistance, without help, without ropes, no harness, nothing, just him and the rock. In order to do that, you have to be 100% you could call it stubborn, <laughs> you could call it tenacious, focused, whatever you want to call that. You have to be in that zone and nowhere else. And I guess he probably got that genetically from me. Right. From his father. 
But yeah, it's tenacity for sure. And once you pick a goal, so this is what I, I do a lot of speaking engagements and mm-hmm. uh, they always say, oh, it's so inspiring. Well, yeah, it is because a lot of people don't ever think about this because it's not really, we're not told to think about this during a normal life in this country, you know, surrounded by media and advertising. And we're just not taught to think about this, to think in these ways. But anybody can do whatever they want to do. They just, I have a method. I have a a series of steps. And if you follow those steps, anybody can do anything. You know, it's, it's a very freeing kind of approach to life, if you will. Yeah. Is there a point in which stubbornness or tenacity where it works against you? I guess there could be, sure. Anything can be taken to extremes or used wrongly, you know. Mm. But if you're talking about, say, your dream, your little secret dream that you don't tell anybody about, you know, I'd like to start my own business. I'd like to open a dog grooming van. I'd like to travel the country. I'd like to swim the English Channel, whatever it is. doesn't matter what it is. But if it's a real dream of yours, it's not going to leave you alone. It's not, mm. not going to stop that. nagging at you, nagging at your brain. And if you choose that as a goal, you have to be pretty stubborn. You know, yeah, I love that. That is, that is so true. That is so true. So tell us how, you know, you got started on these physical challenges. So, you know, at 55, you decided to start running marathons. Like what drove you to that? <laughs> To well, that it's, not, place. it's not that simple. I didn't just, oh, I think I'll run no. a marathon. Like <laughs> yeah, <that>. no, no. <laughs> um, but the whole years, I went through a period of about six, seven years when life was crumbling. My father-in-law died. My father died. My mother died. My, my son almost died up on a mountain. My, my dog died. And then I, from all these deaths, I inherited estates that I had to manage that I wasn't trained to manage. I didn't know how to be an executor of an estate, but I had to learn. I had to be stubborn enough to learn how to do it because I had to do it. And I wound up with five houses I had to deal with, three on the East Coast wow. and two on the West Coast. And I had to do something with them and about them. I had to remodel <laughs> for several years. I was remodeling three houses on the East Coast by phone <laughs> because I lived oh, in California. Gee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And at the same time, I was remodeling a house in West in California, also in West Sacramento. And while I was doing all those things, I was teaching more than full time, you know, an overload of classes. And I was also writing for a little bit of extra income. So <laughs> I didn't have a moment to myself yeah. ever, you know, not a second to myself to just sit. And I mean, I don't have a television. I raised my children without television, so I don't have one in the house. So that's not even a temptation. But towards the end of that period, my, I kept getting magazines about my son. You know, my son technically lived at home. It it was his address. And so all of his mail would come here, but he was never here. He was always traveling the globe somewhere, climbing some enormous thing. (laughs) And so I'd get all his mail, his magazine, and I'd get a magazine and I'd open it and I'd look at it and he's on the cover doing something. And it it would say, Alex Honnold, free solos. He'd done a lot of free solos in his life. Free solo means to climb without ropes. Crazy. And and (laughs) yeah, it's the kind of thing as a mother, you never want to know about. I can imagine. Yeah. And so, and fortunately, credit to him, he knew enough not to tell me what he was doing, you know, for two reasons. Probably a little bit for me, but mostly I think for him, because to free solo, your mind has to be 100% clear. And you have to be focused, you know, and if you know that, you know, Aunt Helen's home saying the rosary so that you don't fall off the mountain, that's not helpful. Right. Anyway. 
so I'd get these magazines, I'd look at it and say, huh, I wonder what that means. And then I'd put it aside and go remodel another house. I didn't have a moment to myself, you know? Right. And so this happened year after year, and I get more, and then I'd see them on video on, on, on the computer, and I'd see, and then I hear other climbers talking about him. And I think my mind was trying to save me, rescue me from thinking about this because I didn't understand what free solo. I mean, I knew the words, and I'd look at the picture, and I'd say to myself, "No, I must be misunderstanding that." Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I'd put it aside and I'd go remodel another house or or teach another class, whatever. And so at one point, you know, my son would have friends over once in a while when he was here. You know, they'd meet here or they'd come to the Sacramento airport and they'd come to my house. And they'd sit around talking about what they had just done or where they were going, what they were going to do, what gear they were going to. And I didn't understand a word of it. Not a word because it's it's a jargon all into Mm. itself. Mm. You know, they use terms that that lay people don't use. And and I didn't know what they were talking about. And given the fact that my son's entire life is climbing, we had absolutely nothing to talk about. Mm. There was nothing between us, nothing deeper than, you know, what do you want for lunch? Because I didn't speak his language. And I'm a linguist. By that point, I spoke like eight languages. And I don't like not knowing what's going on around me, you know? And so I asked him to take me to the climbing gym just so I could get a glimpse of what he does, how he does it, how you tie in, how the harness goes on, what gear they use, you know, and and he did. And I expect, I'm from New York. I've been up many, many skyscrapers and big, tall buildings. And I knew that, you know, if I look out the window or lean over the balcony, my stomach roils, you know, it's not, right. <laughs> not a good feeling, you know. So I always assumed, well, I'm afraid of heights. Like most people say, oh, I can never climb because I'm afraid of heights. That's not true. You're not afraid of the height. What you're afraid of is falling off. Right, right. What I discovered is once you're tied in, you know, on the rope, hanging, it's attached to your harness, you can't go anywhere. And I knew that I had the best climber, strongest climber in the world at the other end of my rope. That goes away because you know you can't fall. And so I discovered, kind of rediscovered that day that I love it. And Mm -hmm. I climbed about 12 walls that day, which is a lot and very unusual. And I just loved it. And I had loved it as a little girl, but I wasn't allowed to do it. I was supposed mm-hmm. to wear dresses and help my mommy, you know. Right. So, so it reawakened that for me. And then he left. He went off to, I think, Siberia or somewhere that, that year. And I was on my own. <laughs> I knew I was old. I knew I was lumpy. I weighed like 40 pounds more than I weigh now. I didn't never got exercise. I never had any time to myself. Right. Uh, knowing all these things, I was afraid to go back to the climbing gym, you know, by myself. Yeah, for sure. But it took me a while, but I eventually got up the courage because I really wanted to try it again. You know, it was fun. It's lots of fun. And so I did. I went back and I started making friends and they helped me. Uh, some of the older climbers were, you know, kind of mentored. They were explaining how things worked. And, and then when my son came through the house once or twice a year, he would help with the information dump, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Little by little, I started kind of going out there. So that's how the, so my kids were running. I know you asked about running rather yeah, than yeah, climbing. Yeah. My kids were running. My, my daughter is a, a long distance runner and cyclist. That's her sports of choice. Those are. And she's also a very good climber. And both my kids can do anything. <laughs> and But climbing is not her sport of choice. But so they would go after these runs and, and 
I was doing all these, you know, like I said, the remodels and teach and correcting. When I was home, I was always correcting stuff for school and lesson planning. I didn't have a minute. And I was so jealous. They were having, having such fun. Right. <laughs> so we had a big dog. We, I say we, that's the royal we. By this time, I lived alone at home. The kids were both gone. My daughter lives in Portland. Alex lives on the road. And my husband had died by this point. And I had the big dog, a Malamute, an Alaskan sled dog. And so I would come home from work, you know, from teaching all day, change my clothes, go down into the office at, here at home and do all the estate work and deal with the houses and all that junk. When I couldn't see anymore, I would just take the dog for a walk. And one night I knew that I couldn't run with the dog because I had grown up in a house where every, they, both parents smoked cigar and cigarette and the, the house was a great cloud you know when you walked in people would go you know it's horrible I, right. I didn't know then because it was all i knew i'd grown up that way you know they didn't know it was bad for you back then you know this is a long time ago and so i knew that and you know i mean anything more strenuous than getting up out of my chair and i would huff and puff my lungs are shot basically that that kills the the sacks in your lungs a little tiny sacks in your lungs and pops they pop and and they don't they don't come back ever and so I, breathing is my biggest issue outdoors. And right. still, is. but so I just assumed that I can't run, I can't swim, anything that involves deep breathing. So I took the dog for a walk. And one night I, I came back to the house. I took my watch and I said, Holy, I just ran a mile. Oh, wow. I was like, I had climbed Everest, you know, for me, that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Everest. And so, yeah, Alex, Alex happened to be home that week and so i yelled alex alex i just climbed i just ran a mile and he came out of the hallway wanted a cookie and and, and his answer changed my life and i hope maybe this will help yeah. change maybe some minds out there right now he looked at me and said well cool mom if you can do a mile you can do a mile and a half mm. and he turned and left <laughs> no hopping up and down i was crushed because i had climbed everest come on let's celebrate and then I started to think about what he said. And he was absolutely right. If you can do a mile, you can do a mile and a quarter right. or a mile and two blocks. Right. You know, a mile and five more minutes. And that's the key to everything in life. That's mm -hmm. the key to everything is baby steps. And that's what I speak about when I go speak and you know, I do corporate speaking and, and a lot of festivals and things. That's the key to everything. If you can dream about it, if you have that dream in your head, you can do it if you break it down into the appropriate baby steps and just chip away at those little baby steps, little by little. And so that's how I got into running. So I started, he said that, and it, I mulled that over all night. And next day I went out again with the dog at, at night and I, I did a mile again, just to see if it was a fluke, you know, Right. And it wasn't, I did it again. And then I went a mile on a, you know, another block. And then we went around another block and then just down to that house on the corner. And then we did another quarter. And within an, a year of pushing those limits, I had gotten up to doing half marathons and marathons. I wow. Yeah. And I never would have believed that if you just asked me, you know, you know like yeah. a year before that, would you like to run a marathon? I would have laughed myself silly. I can't run marathons. I can't breathe. Everybody knows this. Everybody who knows right. me knows I have trouble breathing, you know. Well, guess what? You can surprise yourself. You know? I love that because, I mean, you know, if you, 
like overcoming the perceived limitation, because if you tell anybody, well, you know, my lungs are shot, you know, like that's a pretty justifiable limitation for why you can't run a marathon, right? It is, exactly. Yes. But that you pushed that yeah. and found that it in fact was possible yeah. is incredible. And I did um, the same thing with the climbing too. Once I started climbing, I just kept pushing my limits more and more. So by the time you had started climbing, had you already completed the marathons? Yes, I'd done uh, four of them. So was that kind of in the back of your head? It's like, well, I've already, you know, pushed past this perceived limitation. Therefore, I can do it again with this next thing. Once you break that barrier of your perceived limit, yeah, there are no more limits. You yeah. know, really, it's there really are no more. You can just keep pushing that. Alex calls that expanding your your comfort zone or your comfort. Mm, yes, yes. And whatever you dream of doing, it might sound totally ridiculous and outrageous now because it's not within your comfort zone. But if you keep chipping away at that comfort zone to make it bigger and bigger and bigger so that it eventually includes that thing that you want to do. There are no limits. I mean, it's so true. It's so liberating and it's so true. Yeah. So, you know, again, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about the word courage. What does courage mean to you? And what, like, where does your courage come from? Courage is a non-word. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think about myself as courageous. A courage is a non-word. If you want to do something badly enough, you will do it. That's it. End of story. If you want to do it badly enough, you will do it. You will find the way to, you will find out first what those baby steps are, what you need to do. There are three uh, zones or three sections, whatever you want to call them, of baby steps that you need to follow for any dream. First, you have to find out what you need to know. Mm. I didn't know anything about running. I didn't know. I mean, when I did my first organized run, it was a, a 10K, it was six miles. Right. which I, I assumed that was absolutely ridiculous. I'm not going to be able to run six miles. I mean, come on, I'm not an athlete. Well, I did, but I was running in my jeans and a sweatshirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't know anything about running. I, I had Kmart sneakers and I, I, I didn't know anything. So the first thing, the first group of you know baby steps is you have to learn what you need to know. Right. The second part is you have to learn what you need, what, what you need to get, what you need to have. Like for climbing, there's an awful lot of gear that you need to have. I didn't know what any of it was or how to use it. or you right. know, So what you need to have. When I became a publisher, I became an independent publisher in 1990, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And what you need to have. Well, I needed to have, this is back in the day before email and stuff. I had to have letterhead. I had to have envelopes with my address on it. I had to have... Right. You know, ISBN numbers for the books I was going to publish, all that stuff. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. You have to learn, A, what you need to know, B, what you need to have, and C, what you need to do with all that stuff. Right. And so courage doesn't really fit in any of those categories. It's a kind mm -hmm. of a non-word. If you want to do something badly enough, you will do it. And if you don't do it, chances are you didn't want it badly enough. It's very simple. If you want to open a, you know, like I said, get a van and make you know, dog grooming business, go do it. Don't talk about right. it. Don't write about it. Don't ask me about it. Go do it. If you don't do it, maybe you didn't want it badly enough. It's very simple. People say, oh, I'd love to write a book. Go do it. 
put your right. butt in the chair and write day after day for 10 years and write that book. There's a lot of work involved in any of this. Mm -hmm. And if you are not willing to do the work or find out those baby steps and put it into work, it's not going to happen. So what about the fear of stepping out of your comfort zone? Like, how have you managed past that? There's a lot of fear involved. <laughs> yeah. There was some fear. Well, I'm going to separate climbing from everything else because it's a totally different environment. When I stepped up to the conductor's podium the very first time with my new fledgling orchestra in West Sacramento, and we had rehearsed our hearts out. We knew the music. I knew what I was doing. I broke it down into all those tiny baby steps so that nothing was unfamiliar. There were no unknowns going into that first day. And that's right. that's the key to baby steps. You have to knock out all those unknowns. It's not knowing that makes you fearful. Not knowing is what makes you afraid. You know, mm. people always say, oh, I'm afraid of heights. They don't know what it's like to be up there. They don't know what it's like to tie onto a rope and hang on a wall. And it's the not knowing that makes you fearful. Right. So the first time I got up onto that podium, there was a little teeny touch of fear involved because it was still the old me, you know, still me fighting against all this, this stuff. I hadn't yet learned all these lessons I'm talking about today. You know, I was still learning. And once you, once I raised my baton and once we started and once I got into that zone and I realized that my bubble enclosed all of this stuff, my comfort zone, whatever you want to call that bubble, enclosed right. all of this. We had a wonderful time. So fear goes away. I, I'm not sure how to put this. Fear goes away. What's the word? Ophelia mesure in French. I can't think of the word for that. <laughs> Sorry, thinking in the wrong language. As you little by little yeah. expand that bubble of yours, your experience level, your comfort level, as you as you expand that little by little to include the thing that you're working on, the fear just, just goes away because there's nothing to be afraid of. You know what you're doing. You've learned how right. to do it. You, there are no more unknowns because it's the unknowing, the unknown that makes you afraid. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And I always talk about it as, you know, taking baby steps, right? Like, you know, the tiniest step that you can possibly think of in the direction that you want to go, which is yeah. very similar to what you're talking about. Because I think if, you know, we always, as humans, we are these all or nothing people. And we are like, either right. we're not right. doing it or we're doing it 100%. Yeah. And the right. reality is, as you have proven with learning not languages even. and music, it's like tiny little step by tiny yeah. little step right. that right. could get you the way. And it also helps manage that fear part, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not summoning El Tapa Capitan today. I'm literally putting on this harness, right. climbing exactly. this little wall, right? Exactly. exactly. So, so many times in the book, you mention, you know, while climbing um, and doing other things that you get into what you called flow state. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Like, what is that experience of flow state? Okay. Nowadays, I guess it's called flow state. It used to be called the zone or there were other terms for it. I'm not a scientific type, so I don't know the science behind it and, you know, what it does for you. But many, many times in my life, either you know, sitting at the piano or while doing a painting, a lot of different ways this happens. But flow or zone or whatever you call it is basically that, not exactly a feeling, but that state you get into when, for example, I would sit down at the piano and start 
working on a piece that I want to learn and start playing it. And all of a sudden, it was like three hours later. You know, I'd look at the clock and, oh, <laughs> three hours had gone by. I didn't notice them. And this happens all the time on the rocks because when you're climbing, you cannot be distracted. Mm. You must not be distracted. When you're climbing something, you can't concentrate on anything besides that next handhold, you know, the angle of your body, how you have to move to do whatever you want to do. And so that happens a lot up there simply because it's so essential to what we're doing. Mm. If you're in the zone, in the flow state, whatever, you don't notice time going by. You know, like I said, Mm. I'd sit at the piano and all of a sudden it was three hours later or four hours later, I'd be start a painting and and all of a sudden it's evening and I said, oh, I'm starving. And I didn't notice, you know, the hours go by. And that does wonderful things for a person, for your psyche, for your mental state, your emotional state, mm. for every state of being that we own. Getting into that zone, you are totally focused. And that's one thing. Otherwise, people could die. You could die. You could do I used to, when I started climbing, I was still teaching. And I would leave on a Tuesday afternoon, like 4.30, I'd leave the college and I'd drive to the gym. And I was totally wrapped up in the last exam I had just given. So-and-so didn't do well, and she should have known better, and I did this, and she did that, and we did that, and, and oh, I had this meeting on the next day. All that would be whirling through my head mm-hmm. until I'd park my car, I'd go into the gym, I'd say hi to someone, put my harness on, my shoes on, and start climbing. And the instant you leave the ground, all of that is gone. It was like an instant vacation for your whole brain. Why do we go on vacations? To calm ourselves down, to change our ideas, our, you know, what we're thinking about, to feel more relaxed, to have a good time. All of that mm-hmm. is the zone, that's the zone state in a nutshell. And yeah. climbing did that all the time for me. That's one thing. It's They say, you know, people get addicted to it. You're not addicted to it. It just is so good for you that there's no reason not to do it. Right. So do you think getting into the flow state is, and I know how I experience it, like it's if I'm doing something that I truly love, that feels like soul fulfilling, right? Like that's when I kind of, the outside world drops away. I'm not in my thinky, thinky brain. So for you, because you're playing the piano, which is something you love that you're climbing, because I think about like, I am not a climber. And if I was up on a wall, I'm not sure I'd be able to get to flow state. Like, I'd be like thinking every move and thinking through moves ahead, yeah. like for my own safety. But do you think that is a, a factor of like following a passion or a purpose? Yeah, for sure. The more invested you are in what you're doing, the easier mm. it is to get into that state. Because everything else, like you said, everything else sloughs off. Everything else is gone. Yeah. You are only that one thing at that one moment. And even if it's dangerous or what you perceive as dangerous, I, right. I don't. I'm, you don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not a dangerous climber. I'm safety first. And that's you know my motto. It's, it's my son's motto as well, safety first. But even if other people perceive it as dangerous or wild or crazy, whatever, when I'm there, when I'm doing it, it's just like the piano playing or the painting or, you know, whatever you, you were talking about. Everything else is gone and you are on vacation. Just doing what you love. Love. Yeah. 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 You know what? I wish that experience for everybody. And, you know, and I, I hope if anybody listening, like to pay attention to what you were doing when you felt that, you know, whatever you were like, you looked up and you're like, oh my goodness, two hours went by. Backtrack for a second. (laughs) 
Yeah, but first they have to find out what it is that gives yes. them. Yes. And sometimes that's the, the struggle. For, that is the struggle. Yeah. We, well, we compromise so much in life. And, you know, well, okay, I'll sit in my cubicle for eight hours or, or I'll do, you know, whatever. And a lot of people never find that, which is very sad. Yeah. 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 Like I said, I, I wish that experience for everybody because it's yeah. when you truly, when you find that thing, you know, you have that thing just because of, you know, being able to get into that. I want to now turn the conversation to the last chapter of your book, which is your experience of climbing El Capitan. So you're age 66, you've been training for this. I was literally holding my breath the whole time, like trying to imagine what that would be like. And you talk about, you know, okay, first of all, let me put this in context for people. You did in like, what, 12 hours, what climbers normally- Yeah, 13 hours up. Take four or five days to do. Mm-hmm. So your first like really, really big climb, you do it like <laughs> full out. <laughs> right, right. Which I didn't, that know, is... I didn't know back then. If I had known back then how extraordinary that was to do it so fast, I might have second guessed myself and not done it, you know, because right. I'm not that good a climber. I'm not a fast climber and I'm not this. And, I'm not, and I know all these things about myself, and I, but I didn't know that. Thank goodness. <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes not knowing it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. ignorance can can be bliss. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. Sometimes I say that about the podcast. I'm like, boy, if I had known how much work it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. But it turns out to be the thing that I love to do most in this this world. So yeah, so now I do it. But you talk about, you know, how like your hands are hurting physically, you're exhausted, you haven't eaten anything. Like, And like the physical exertion alone, yeah. like how did you find the mental fortitude to keep going when you were in like that much physical pain? That's a very good question. And I w- worried about that, you know, before I worried about that a lot because, <laughs> uh, you know, when I, I'm hungry, I need to eat. And when, yeah. And when I do that, then I have to go to the bathroom afterward. And then, and then, and then, and then, you know. Yeah. And I knew these things about myself. I trained for 18 weeks to do this and I trained hard and there was some of that in the training, but during the training, I would stop and you know eat <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I knew that with Alex, we would not be stopping. <laughs> My son does not stop. Go, 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 finish, go home and go to sleep. So yeah, that concerned me going in, you know, going into this adventure. I didn't, I was about to say I didn't know if I'd be able to finish, but I knew I'd have to finish because the only way off that rock is up, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have that option, but I didn't know what condition I'd be in or if I'd have to stop and, you know, figure out a way to eat something. I didn't. There were a lot of unknowns. But it, again, it's that zone thing. The, mm-hmm. the, flow, the flow state. Yeah. Flow state or zone. Once we started climbing, once I started, you know, I watched him do the first pitch. It was like 630 in the morning by then. Sun was almost up and I watched him. I could see him. So I could watch him do the first pitch. And then I got on the rock. And from that moment on, my mind, my thinky, thinky mind, like you called it, was gone. Totally gone. It was yeah. not there. In its place was this determination. I said, I'm going to do this. I practiced for 18 weeks to do this. These two guys are out here at my behest to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, and I just did it. And I never stopped to think about it on my way up. 
I was hungry, but you know, I had a little, little nibblies in my pocket. And I just satisfied it that way. And uh, I didn't drink much, so I didn't need to stop for that, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, you just, if it's your goal, once you commit to a goal, the only way off is to do it. The right. only way off the rock, if, if that's what your goal is, the only way off the rock is to get to the top. <laughs> we weren't coming back down to face. You know, we had to go to the top. So, you know, because there's no way to, to repel down that. So it wasn't really in question at all. I stepped up to the rock, I got on it, and I didn't think until I got off it. Wow. So you never kind of let that because, you know, I'm I'm likening your journey up that rock face to any other journey that somebody's finds difficult, like out of their comfort zone. And yeah. the human brain likes to throw at you all of the reasons why it's not going to work, how you're going to fail, how badly you're going to get hurt, like all of the things. But because like you literally just blocked that out and you well, were just like focused. That's, that's part, that's the largest part of it was, yes, I just focused and blocked it out. Another part of this, I think we talked about this earlier, is learning, you know, like mm-hmm. lifelong learning. Right. It, you know, it's what kids do all the time. It's why they have such a good time all the time because they're yeah. learning all the time. And that whole voyage up that face of rock for me was a learning experience. I had never done anything like it. I had to, <laughs> about midway up, I had to learn how to lower myself out sideways, which is a skill that you can't practice anywhere besides on a rock where you can lower out. Sideways. So I had never done it. And I knew that this was coming. <laughs> and I was you know, thinking about that. And I was thinking about all the stuff we were learning. And the views, of course, from up there are mm, spectacular. I bet. And the experience of the moment was so distracting that I nothing else could distract me. Mm. You, you know, I could put it that way. I don't know if that's yeah. clear. Yeah. But everything I was experiencing up there was so distracting, so riveting that I didn't have space in my brain for anything else. <laughs> that's incredible. That, you know, that's absolutely incredible because I think it's the power of focus too, right? Like what you were focused on was not the pain, not what you were in. You distracted yourself with the focus of how beautiful, Mm -hmm. you know, your surroundings were. Exactly. That's actually a really, really good lesson. And you talk about like the point of no return too, and like getting your mind around that. Like there's only one way (laughs) this and it's through it, (laughs) right? Like you can't go back. You can't call a taxi. You can't go. You know, the other thing you could call would, would be a helicopter. And I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to embarrass my son by, you know, moving out and calling a helicopter. So, yeah, I knew at the outset that I had no options. I had to finish. And so I just convinced myself that that's what I was going to do. You know, I had no options. Right. And then like you get to the top. So you're climbing in, you know, you're going through this physical pain. You get to the top. But you're not done. <laughs> no, no, oh, right? no. Like at this point, it's dark yeah, and it's you have dark. to figure out how to get down. So it's like it's again, it's like you reach this pinnacle and now you're like, OK, yeah, yeah. and summon up the fortitude again to be like, OK, right at one part of your book, which I thought was fascinating. You know, you're talking about, you know, across the flats, the flat part. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, you know, stubby trees, thorny shrubs, all matter of traps waiting to spring my fatigue rat spring on my fatigued racked body the worst trap though was in my head yeah yeah because i was concerned about all those things <laughs> right when you're on the top of el cap going down 
I mean, you don't want to go down the hard way, you know, straight down. <laughs> so going down is very, very steep. Mm. And I was worn out. I was totally worn out. Yeah. Not, every part of me, my feet were worn out, my shins, my hand, every part of me was worn out. And that's very steep. And it was pitch dark. And there are a lot of patches of what's called glacial polish, which is just like ice. Mm. So I I tested every step, <laughs> which made me go pretty slow, you know, slowly and slowly. And, at, and this goes on for like, I don't know, a mile. <laughs> it's quite, quite a distance doing this. And Alex was wonderful. He kept telling me stories about all his travels mm. and his climbing. And he kept my mind off. He tried to keep my mind off, you know, what I was doing, but my mind was 50, 50. I was loved his stories. I, I needed that, the distraction, if you will, and encouragement. And, but at the same time, it was like ice. And then there was thorny patches and then there was a boulder you get around, you know, it was constant obstacles. At one point, he, <laughs> he's very, very patient with me when he climbs with me and he knows that I can't do most of what he does. At one point though, he turned around and said to me, mom, I can't even make myself go that slow. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love our kids. <laughs> and I felt for him. I mean, he, he was dialing it back so much to keep my pace. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the the third person, the other guy who had cleaned the route behind Alex, he, he left. He went he went down Pell but uh, Alex stayed wow. with me in step. So how do you feel then when you get to the bottom? Like, what is your first thought when you're like, I just did this, like this incredible thing? All the way down, it was really hard going down. And it's a really rough scramble. And then you have to go down six fixed ropes on the on Grigri. And then you have to scramble through the forest and there were bugs and it was mud. And there was, every step was treacherous for like mm -hmm. six hours, six nonstop hours of paying attention to every step. And my feet were worn out. My knees were worn out. Uh, so when I got to flat ground, finally, I did not let myself think about it. I said, okay, we're going back to the cabin or whatever they call the, well, the ranger's cabin, ranger's house. We're going back to the house. I'm going to throw something in my mouth, eat something real fast and go to bed. I'll think about it tomorrow. <laughs> and that's what I did. Alex's then girlfriend, now wife, but his Sonny uh, had waited up for us. I guess he told her, you know, where we were. And uh, she had a hot dinner waiting for us oh. at 2.30 2 in the morning. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's probably the best there. food you ever ate. <laughs> it was. Oh, boy. Yeah. As the French yeah. say, as French say, appetite is the best sauce. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? And then the next morning, did you allow yourself to celebrate your accomplishment? Well, when I was going to crawl, you know, crawling into bed, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be a wreck. I'm going to be a wreck in the morning. They're going to have to pry me out of this bed. <laughs> At eight o'clock, my eyes just popped open. And uh, there were a lot of climbers staying in this ranger's house, and, and there was noise in them. Eight o'clock, my eyes popped open, and I was absolutely fine. Ah. Absolutely fine. I got out of bed, spring in my step, and, you know, got ready and, and went out. Ate breakfast and yeah, I, I accepted everybody's congratulations. Yeah, they were amazing. Yeah, and chatted with everybody. And then I decided to drive home. Mm. Um, so the place was crowded. I, I needed quiet. Yeah, I needed uh, what's the word? I needed to process. And I couldn't yeah. do that, you know, with them. Right. So I, so I drove home. Four hours, four and a half hours. I drove home, and I was absolutely fine. That's the beauty of training enough. Mm. You know.
Yeah, yeah. preparedness that you talked about before, right? Yeah. Like over preparedness is the key to success in anything. And yeah. I had prepared quite a lot. <laughs> wow. Good for you. So I mean, the list of accomplishments over your life is incredible. You continue to challenge yourself time and time again. What is your next challenge? Well, this fall, yeah, this fall, I'm going to do some speaking. I'll do some speaking events with my slideshow in the French Alps. Oh, nice. And I've always wanted to try both hiking there and climbing there you know, since I've become a climber. Last fall, I got to tick off one of my lifelong, since I started climbing desires, you know, I got to climb in the Dolomites. I, I was speaking there as well, mm. and I got in the Dolomites, uh, which are, you know, north, northeastern Italy. And the Dolomites were amazing. And I got to climb in the, Alp, the Swiss Alps, that trip, this trip, it'll be the French Alps. And in May, I'm going to climb all over Spain. Oh. With, with uh, I'm, again, I'm doing some speaking engagements and, uh, some climbing trips all over Spain. So uh, I got a lot going on and yeah, looking forward to it all. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And there is a movie coming out, a documentary coming out about your experience, which is being made by one of our previous podcast guests, Melissa Davey. I think that's coming out this spring, which I cannot wait to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the trailer is out now. They can see the trailer on YouTube. Mm, okay, good. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, it's called Climbing Into Life on YouTube. And the trailer is beautiful. I, she did a really nice job on the trailer. I'm just hoping the movie is as good as the trailer is. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Her last film was so great. It was so good. And the name of the book, The Sharp End of Life, what's the meaning behind that? Uh, the sharp end is a climbing term. It takes two people to do a climb, you know, one on each end of the rope. And when you start a climb, there's no rope on the rock. You know, you have to put it there. So the first person who climbs up, they take their, each person is tied into the rope on their harness. Mm -hmm. And first person goes up, first person is climbing without any protection until they put it in. So you right. carry all the gear on your harness, you put a, a piece of protection, they call it a beater, with, a lot hard to explain, but a piece of metal protection. You put it, you anchor it somehow into the rock in a little hole or around a little horn of rock or whatever is available. And then you clip the rope into it. And now mm. once the rope is clipped into it, you are safe or safer. Right. And if you fall, you hope that holds you. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it pulls out. So you have to know what you're doing. So mm. there's always this element of danger. So the lead climber, that's called the lead climber, the first one, the lead climber takes all the risks and all the danger is for the lead climber. And the person standing on the ground controls the rope for that person, keeps it taut so that if they do fall, they don't fall far. You know, they, right. just, dangle, they just dangle there. So the in climbing they call that the upper extreme of the road they call that the sharp end of the mm. road and in my life as you know since so you read my book i lived my entire life on the sharp end of my life you know i was mm. always it was always a rotten end for me you know right i got the short end of the stick in every way possible so until now you know until recently till till i really started climbing and, and getting into the zone and getting out there so that's why I call it the sharp end of life. Yeah, I mean, that's so beautiful. And, you know, even just by you sharing your story, I mean, you are the lead climber for anybody who has yeah. a desire, yeah. a dream, or, yeah. you know, something tough that they're facing. Like you, by example, 
have, you know, put in the protections or showed how it can be done. So I love, I love that. And this book is so good. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, that last chapter, I was holding my breath because (laughs) I could not imagine myself having that experience and how I would handle it. And I took so many lessons from your fortitude, you know, from your preparedness. Like, I think there's so many great life lessons in this book. So Thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Everybody go check out this book, The Sharp End of Life. You can get it on Amazon, I believe. Anywhere you buy books. Anywhere you buy books. I will put the link for the trailer to the movie coming out this spring in the show notes as well. So stay tuned for that. Well, when it comes out, I'm going to be sharing it widely with my audience. So everybody (laughs) stay tuned so that you can see firsthand Dieter's experience of this. So what an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So to everybody listening, I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. If you did like what you hear, I would be so honored if you could leave us a rating or a review. Five-star review would be great. Or even a greater compliment would be to pass this episode on to a friend, relative, or somebody you think might get something out of it. So until next time. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in.